0: Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at KBOO.FM. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at KBOO.FM. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at KBOO.FM. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. KBOO is community-planted, watered, and grown. Our funding is cultivated by listeners like you. We are looking to harvest $55,000 for this fall drive to support our organic, bountiful programming. Take root by becoming a member today. Just go to kboo.fm slash give to donate or text KBOO to 44321. Thank you.
1: Hey, yo, this is Cliffing. You're listening to KBOO. There's
0: something listening. Good evening. You're listening to Trans Positive here on KBOO Community Radio. Uh, tonight we have Tash Stats, and we're going to be talking with Tash about the rise of white nationalism and the role that white nationalism and right wing Christian church are playing in anti trans legislation and anti trans violence. Tash, welcome to Trans Positive.
1: Thank you so much, Emma. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Thank you. So, Tash, um, Before we start, can you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, I'm Tosh. I use they, them pronouns. And I've been kind of working in social justice space for my whole adult life. Um, Overall, probably about 20 years in trans advocacy. I kind of had to start for myself being my own trans advocate. Um, I myself was actually a trans youth and uh, started transition when I was 16. Um, and yeah, I had to just become an educator. <laughs> and then I ended up uh, for kind of falling into it professionally. I worked for uh, a few years at Basic Rights Oregon, helping to start the transgender justice program there. Um, and I've worked in uh, Bradley Engel LGBTQ uh, domestic violence program. Um, and then I've been you know, a consultant on both LGBTQ and trans issues, but also racial equity through key partners. Um, And in particular, my, my strong colleague, Sydney Morgan, who's the CEO of Red Sea Road Consulting, she and I have been doing a lot of work together, particularly in the last three years, going pretty deep on how do we bring an intersectional focus to racial equity centering race, but then also really understanding how white supremacy and racism are templates for all the other isms and and kind of being able to explore those um, intersections. So uh, that that's, yeah, what kind of brought us to to doing this webinar um, in the first place was just having these conversations and recognizing, oh, there's a little bit of a gap between connecting this white nationalist history with this current anti-trans environment.
0: Well, let's let's talk about that um <clears throat> because i know that we're going to be hearing some of your uh, presentation that you, you give on, on this topic um the what 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 exactly do you educate people about i mean what do people need to know about white nationalism and the role it plays in anti-trans violence
1: yeah great question well for me i think rooting a lot in history is important um, because so much of what we see today in terms of tactics are from a playbook that has existed since uh, since this land was first called the United States, right? Um, and I think that that is really being able to understand historically what, what have, has happened in our systems, particularly in our government, where white Christian nationalism has been not only normalized but also upheld by laws and policies. Uh, and I think, yeah, that that is kind of an entry point of like, okay, what do we know from history? And then exploring what's happening right now. So when we see these anti trans attacks, I think one in particular one place, a lot of folks have written about not my original idea, but an important one is the anti trans sports bans. The ways that we are being targeted as a trans community are really built on some of the same methods that have partic- particularly been used against Black female athletes. So thinking about um, Venus and Serena Williams, for instance, uh, being kind of you know constantly having um, accusations of doping and have being referred to their bodies being referred to in very gendered ways. Um, you know th- that's a recent example, but we can go. Very far back, and see how there's this kind of white supremacist template in sports that's now being warped and used against trans people.
0: Great. And you do these popular education workshops. Do you do them, you know, um, around Portland? Do you do them as part of a, a curricula as a teacher? How do you disseminate your information?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I you know I do sometimes just do speaking events, or I'll join for a conference. I was recently with the Oregon Healthcare Association um, last week. You know that they, they had a big conference that I got to present there on trans allyship in in medical or care facilities. Uh, but for the most part, I work with ongoing clients. So Sydney and I, who w- were made this presentation, we've worked um, we worked with a client uh, in California for two or three years. So a large nonprofit organization with about a thousand staff, and our you know overall scope was bringing uh, courageous conversations about race as a curriculum, as train the trainer. Really thinking about what are the containers. That folks can set to have conversations about race and how is that then connected to being able to talk about things like transphobia? Um, so I've been really fortunate to be able to do multi-year processes with a couple of different large nonprofits. And I think that's really helped um, yeah, helped me explore what are some of the themes that are coming up for people and where can I fill in those gaps of connecting issues that are so uh entrenched.
0: Great. So before we get into your workshop, Tash, um, I do want to give some kudos and appreciation. And I think that, you know, you're you, maybe you're somebody who isn't likely to toot your own horn as much as maybe some other people but i know that there was a bill passed uh, this last legislative session that apparently some republicans got very upset about apparently they got so upset that they shut down the entire state legislature for almost six weeks and i know that you had a role in helping to get that bill passed could you tell us a bit about that
1: Oh, well, that's very kind. I think, um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm familiar. I can take little to no credit for uh, that bill. I did not personally work on it. Um, but I think what what folks might be thinking of or referring to, I was very fortunate um, between probably 2008 and 2014 uh, doing just a lot of particularly in Portland, but all around Oregon trans inclusion work. So I got to you know be in spaces with everyone from the department of corrections to ohsu um and part of my job at that time at basic rights oregon was pursuing legislation um and administrative policy gains that was you know to benefit trans communities um so i think i helped i think i and many others laid you know foundation um working it with our insurance division to remove exclusions um working with the oregon health plan to include trans-related care um and yeah and just kind of overall making sure that our our state laws and policies have explicit trans inclusion language oh well thank you so much yeah it feels like such an honor to get to work in community um yeah and i I kind of love how many I feel like so much um has grown like even you having this program right and the work that you've done over the years um yeah it's, it feels like a much more wonderful and different world than when I you know, came out in two thousand and four, <laughs> I feel like it's such a better place
0: well, great, Tesh, well, could you share with us a kind of a sampling of your workshop um on white nationalism and anti-trans violence then?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: great. thanks so much.
1: yeah, so this is just a very uh, short history of white Christian nationalism to anti-trans violence. and um again, something to know here is this is, my attempt with my colleague Sydney Morgan of really thinking about how can we connect um, and understand what's happening uh, with anti-trans anti-trans bills laws rhetoric um, that's going on right now so kind of how did we get to this moment where we have over 500 pieces of legislation across the country that are specifically targeting trans folks right when we know hey you know there's more of us than people think but there's not so many of us that this uh, this makes a lot of sense, um, unless we look at it from a political and historical lens. So starting out, um, we actually begin our presentation with a quote from Frederick Douglass. And uh, this is from Frederick Douglass's narrative of his own life, um, which is available for free online if you look up the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. And he has this kind of incredibly insightful, Uh, way that he discusses the united states as a christian country so he says quote between the christianity of this land and the christianity of christ i recognize the widest possible difference so wide that to receive the one as good Pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad corrupt and wicked to be the friend of the one is necessity to be the enemy of the other I love the pure peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ therefore I hate the corrupt slave holding women whipping cradle plundering partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land indeed I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion religion of this land Christianity so I don't know who could say it better than Frederick Douglass, but um, mm-hmm. it feels like a really important framing. And when we look into history, we can see these same kind of Christian white nationalist arguments were being used um, in 1845, right when when he wrote his uh, own autobiography. So really, starting with that framing, um, just remembering and honoring that a lot of folks have been talking a lot about this uh, for a long time, and we're building on that legacy. And then we also just want to name that language is a tricky and fluid thing. So there's not an official definition of white Christian nationalism. Um, There's not an official definition of even white supremacy or whiteness. So just establishing when we're talking about this, here's what we mean, even though we can also explore other definitions, right? um so in particular kind of thinking about white supremacy as this big umbrella of uh terror uh so white supremacy as a system um when i when i talk about white supremacy i'm not talking just about a small you know bigoted group of people but rather the machinery in this in this country and across the world but in this country that um ensures and essentially creates us this uh definition of whiteness and privileges that so uh, white supremacy in a nutshell is a system of belief that being white is a race and is superior to other races Um, so within that i think we we just have to recognize the invention of whiteness so we've known for decades from the human genome project that race is not a genetic um reality of biology right but we see that race is actually a social category that has been created to separate isolate and divide us credit to create just conversations for that language right so that when we look at the history of race we see you know the very first instance of race being mentioned in u.s law was you know before the, the country was a country um was this was three men who had run away three men who are indentured servants who had run away Um, and one of them was a dutchman one of them was a scotchman and one of them was a black man who was not referred to as having any nation and that he received a sentence uh to be enslaved for the remainder of his life and the other two men did not and that is the first place where we kind of see this um acknowledgement of race or this kind of construct beginning to happen in the US in actual law and policy. Uh-huh. Um, and I think what's important about that to highlight is, is as we see how these words were legislated or used, um, the concept of whiteness itself really resting on uh, trying to tear communities apart, right? Making sure the workers don't get together and organize, making sure that um, different racial groups are pitted against one another rather than allying together. so under the backdrop of all this is important to recognize when we're talking about transphobia, it's very informed by this larger system of white supremacy. Within that system, people with disabilities, queer and trans people, right? All people who are different, quote unquote, um, are devalued or seen as aberrations and the same tactics of Christianity uh, in a white nationalist way, again creating this kind of tension, as Frederick Douglass says, between the Christianity of this nation and true Christianity. Um, but we see that being uh, deployed in very specific ways um, today. So when we think about all of this, uh, you know, white Christian nationalism would. I would define that as white people should be in charge and hold political power and Christianity is the only true religion of the land in the United States, being a Christian country. Right. So we can see with these different belief systems, there's some overlap. Um, We think about MAGA or uh, neo-Nazis or conservative Christians and evangelical movements anti-abortion and anti-immigrant movements. What we know is that a lot of these are the same organized groups of people pursuing all kinds of exclusionary laws, policies, and frankly, uh, creating a social uh, situation where we are eradicating difference, right? Eradicating trans people and other people from public space.
0: Hi there, this is Emma Lugo. Um, I'm the president of KBOO Community Radio, um, president of the board. And I'm just here today. Um, I'm also a co-host of Trans Positive, And I want to encourage you to give. It's um, our fall fundraising drive. And our on-air goal is $55,000. Um, if you'd like to give, you can go to kboo.fm slash give. Or you can also go to our mobile app and click donate in the mobile app. Um, We also accept, uh, you can also give by going to text and text KBOO to 44321. And finally, we take good old-fashioned checks. You can send a check to KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, uh, Southeast Portland, Oregon, 97214. So thanks so much for your support of KBOO Community Radio.
1: Yeah. Um, and then, I, you know, one thing that for me, I'll just kind of name these are the key points that I like to think about when I'm looking at this issue overall. And I, I kind of have called this before cultural gaslighting. I don't know if that is a term of art, but it's something that I've used really to signify when there is essentially somebody or a group of people doing some act of violence, of exclusion, of control, and then pointing over there away from them and saying, look at what these people are doing. So a few examples of this. the claim that LGBTQ folks are, quote unquote, grooming children, right, or associated with pedophilia has been a tactic of of white Christian nationalists for a long time, anti-LGBTQ folks for a long time. But what we know at the same time is these charges of grooming are being leveled against queer and trans folks and drag queen drag queen story hours what's actually happening in large christian conservative institutions just in the last year right southern baptist convention Hillsong usa systemic child abuse systemic child abuse happening in these institutions at the same time as they are pointing at the trans folks and the queer folks and saying look at those look at those people who are hurting children and i think in that same vein we you know the anti uh anti-abortion movement has done a lot of this um and and reproductive justice folks have really understood that this idea of um being pro-life is very out of sync with what has actually happening happened um so we know for instance when we're talking about white supremacy we know that there is a historical uh systematic sterilizing of um black and brown people people with disabilities and queer and trans people right so this idea that who is actually allowed to procreate and how that's connected to propagating the white race uh, mm-hmm. very very important uh, we have a lot we see these signs at these protests uh, against trans folks or against for for anti-trans policies they'll say, leave our kids alone, right? That's a slogan of the movement. Um, at the same time, these are folks who are disproportionately focused on children's anatomy um, and have proposed legislation uh, that includes genital examinations of trans children. Um, so again, this kind of major gaslighting saying, leave our kids alone while we are literally obsessed with your children's genitals. Um, and I think that, you know, may sound crass, but I think it's very important when we talk about who is actually talking about uh the anatomy of people in this very invasive way. Um, I think there's this idea that trans people are quote unquote, like we're putting it, you know, we're putting all our stuff out there, we're shoving it in people's faces. Um, but what we actually see is these very brutal and invasive intentions around um, how trans children are treated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We also know that overall there's these talking points of small government, federalism, states' rights, while at the same time um, these laws and policies are trying to regulate what we can do with our bodies. Right? They're banning books, they're creating segregated charter schools, while at the same time saying the government shouldn't be involved in this. And then, of course, there's replacement theory, um, which I think is a really important and to- a topic to be explored a lot more. But this idea that um, Jews, particularly um, Black and Brown people, and some you know whoever they want to fit in here, are are replacing um, the general population. This idea that particularly white men, white Christian men, are under attack in this country. Um, it, you know, is being propagated. I've heard, you know, many times this uh, idea that, well, white white Christian men or white straight men are um, now a minority in our own communities. And I think what, to me is really what really stands out about that is when we look at the history of who has been eradicated from public space, who has been mass murdered in this country, um, is is not white Christian men <laughs> at all. No. So wild. So while we deconstruct these kind of um, narratives, I'll offer a few historical threads. Not at all a complete history, but just some historical events that we know um, are are not even subjective, but we know factually occurred. Um, so something that's been documented somewhat in in very challenging ways by uh, by you know white historians, but also more in verbal history. In, within indigenous communities, we know that before colonization, before Spanish conquests and Christian European colonists, on this land that was called Turtle Island, you know, we have in innumerable tribes with cultures that often would include trans people, who uh, now are called Two Spirit people, a modern name adopted by indigenous communities. But Two Spirit people, you know, holding very high positions, being healers, being leaders. Um, And when colonists came, they were, you know, shocked and appalled by the presence of two-spirit people who were expressing gender in ways that they were not familiar with as colonists. Um, And they also observed, you know, matrilineal structures often um, where women and two-spirit people held the highest positions within tribes. And so it was a tactic of early colonization to remove women and trans people, two-spirit people um, from leadership positions and to try to create a gender conformity that matched with Christianity. And so all of this was done under really using the Christian framework of saving these quote-unquote uncivilized people. So we see this deep connection between racism, transphobia, um, anti-indigeneity, right? All of these things together. Uh, before this before we even called ourselves the United States,
0: Wow, that's so interesting. It, do you have actual historical records that you can you know go back to to refer to those? Um, those claims or is that based on oral histories? what What's the source of that information? I mean, yeah. I, I'm really fascinated and I believe you. I'm just I, I'd never heard that before
1: oh yeah i would say from one of the primary sources i use is gregory smithers book reclaiming two spirits um and that book and he's done a lot of different um interviews as well but he has a doctorate and he first kind of started studying this in the 90s um, and really made it his mission to bring two spirit history um. So the name, the full name of the book is "Reclaiming Two Spirits: Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America," and that's Gregory Smithers. Um, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, and so that's. I think that would be the most citable resource. But there's also a lot of different um, individual folks who have done this work locally. Um, we have. A, there's a great podcast, uh, Your Two Spirit Aunties Podcast. Um, where they kind of talk both a little bit about history, but also about their current experiences of being Two-Spirit. So there's just whether you're into reading or Listening to things, you're probably into listening to things. If you're listening to this, um, if you just look, you know, put in two spirit" on your Spotify, there's going to be multiple folks who are speaking from
0: that experience. Um, Thanks so and- much. I'm um, speaking of listening. You're listening right now to KBOO Community Radio. This is Transpositive, and we're talking with Tash Sats. Um, can I call you a community organizer, Tash?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Tash is a community organizer who works at the intersection of trans issues and intersecting social justice issues and um, is presenting with to us today um, part of a workshop that Tash presents on uh, white nationalism and its role in anti-trans violence. Back to you, Tash.
1: Thanks so much, Emma. Um, So we had talked a little bit about uh, pre-Declaration of Independence, recognizing that there were two-spirit folks in Indigenous communities um, who were particularly targeted and and also makes it difficult to find um, citable history, right, because people were uh, eradicated. When we fast forward a little bit to 1776, and we are seeing the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, I think it's important to know that the Declaration of Independence was designed to organize white men of property. So even white men without property were not awarded the same uh, rights in the original Declaration of Independence. Um, and at the time, each state, so for about 10 years, each state had their own rules about who could vote and most explicitly excluded Black and Native people and other people of color, but also Quakers, Jews, and Catholics. And we'll come back to that um, anti-Catholic bit a little later. The Constitution is written and ratified 1787 through 89. um, And the right to vote is then only afforded to white male property owners. So um, in the first U.S. election of 1789, less than 25% of the population was eligible to vote. Um, so that's kind of just recognizing that what originally the intentions of who uh, was in charge in this country is what white Christian nationalists are trying to uh, keep. So in their mind, this has always been and, and truly in the policy mind, this has always been something that existed in the U.S., and then, as you know, the U.S. begins expanding in the early 1800s, and throughout uh, that century, Manifest Destiny takes hold. Right, so uh, territorial territorial expansion of the U.S. We need to get as much land as we can, and that is how we um, got the acquisition of Oregon, Texas, New Mexico, California, Alaska, Hawaii um all from this uh yeah this idea of as much territorial expansion as possible and that this was god's way so that our expansion was not only to benefit the united states but we needed to save the heathenistic um you know people across the u.s the indigenous people the unclaimed land um and make it Orderly and white and Christian. Um, so when we when folks think about manifest destiny, it was really white Christian nationalism that undermined that. We then are seeing um, more and more conversation about uh, slavery and the um, Civil War. And what we know is that slavery advocates were using in the 1830s um, biblical arguments. Right, they falsely using the story of Ham um seeing his father noah drunk and naked and ham cursed and ham becomes black and that's how black folks exist right Is, so folks literally using the bible to justify racism um and then we know that you know through from the 1800s to the 1960s states had different definitions of race right so some states uh used pseudoscientific quote unquote one drop rule um of determining that somebody is black or that one quarter or more heritage constituted blackness so all of these pseudoscientific not based in reality but very much in policies and legislation that is totally out there for the world to see right um we can see in particular in the south but also in other states um yeah this really using this white christian nationalist framework of Uh, keeping people out, keeping people excluded.
0: Hi, this is Emma Lugo. I'm the president of the board of KBU Community Radio. And I am here today. I'm interrupting the show because I just would like to encourage you to make a donation to K-Boo. Um, I just want to say that KBU is in a great position right now financially. We've never had so much money, but we've also never had so many expenses. And as president of the board, I can tell you that it's always a constant source of anxiety for me, wondering how are we going to fund this precious community radio station of ours. And I think a lot of it comes from membership support and from community support. Uh, We've got a great thing going on down at the station, but we really need your support. Um, Our expenses have increased. And so if you want to show that you really support having, um, uh, you know, a Workers who who are protected by a union, and if you support those labor values that we all care so much about here at KBOO, then please um, increase your support for our radio station because we. So, anyways, if you want to give to KBOO, please go to kboo.fm/give, or you can also uh, send a check the old-fashioned way. To KBOO at 20 Southeast Eighth Avenue, Portland, Oregon 97214. Thanks so much for your support of KBOO Community Radio.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there, there's this deep connection, um, and we'll talk about that too. That we then Nazis actually studied what are the what are the ways that we put race into law and policy so they could use that to their means. But this particular racial superiority and then eugenics kind of becoming officially created in the 1880s. Um, again, a pseudoscience, very racist and very anti-disability, right? Um, we we saw uh, this idea of eugenics or craniology used to pass laws and then to restrict immigration. So when we get to the turn of the 20th century, um, We have uh, one of a very popular book published called "The Passing of the Great Race," uh, which was another pseudoscientific theory of the quote-unquote Nordic race being superior. Um, What is extra uh, just terrifying about this to me is this: uh, the the person who wrote this renowned was a conservationist, um, anti eugenicist, Madison Grant worked for just about fifteen years maybe 10 years, and was able to uh, influence the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924. And the Immigration Act of 1924 was a direct source of inspiration to Nazis because it was explicitly holding up white supremacy and Protestantism. So the Immigration Act of 1924 prevented all immigration from the Asian continent, uh, set quotas on inferior immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe created the first US border control and established visa requirements um so there's a there's a political um cartoon uh from a newspaper at the time in 1924 and their headline was america of the melting pot comes to an end um because this this immigration act was so restrictive that that was even visible to people at the time right so this act is passing in 1924 In in around that same time, Nazi leaders are coming up. Right? It wasn't like the Nazis suddenly appeared in the nineteen thirties. They had a uh, strategic rise to power. They had lawyers who studied um, U.S. law and other countries' law to bolster or create arguments for the ways that they were eradicating people um, or moving towards eradicating people. And yeah, it is. And we see that. You know, kind of systemically happening, creating who are the others, right? Um, to get to the point of then murdering millions and millions of Jews and other targeted groups. Uh, but this was always entrenched both with racism and homophobia and transphobia, right? So uh we you know talk about Nazi book burnings have been something people have evoked historically to to compare to what's going on today in the US. Um And I think that's an important comparison and what we often don't hear about when we hear about those book burnings is that one of the um, kind of many large sources of knowledge and culture were destroyed and one of those was the Institute of Sexual Studies, which as far as we know was the first modern Um, Clinic in the world to offer gender-affirming care and to have transgender patients. It was run by a queer queer Jewish sexologist, Magnus Hirschfeld, um, who Nazis had targeted for a long time. They targeted him in uh, political cartoons in different ways. And when they escalated to the point of actually having full-blown riots where they're burning 20,000 books, they destroy the entire library of the Institute of Sexual Studies, um, which had the most research um at the time on what we would now call trans folks or or pro lgbtq um research so in a very real way this connection um between white nationalism racism transphobia homophobia um is not just theoretical but actually we see events that prove that this happened
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so at the same time in the United States really from you know the rise of the Nazi party was in the 1920s through 30s um in the US in the 1920s we established the Federal Bureau of Investigation and um for almost 50 years J Edgar Hoover is the director uh and you you know I think J Edgar Hoover there's lots of important writing and stuff about him but particularly what I want to talk about is his impact within the FBI of promoting white Christian nationalism. So some of the things J. Edgar Hoover is known for was establishing a quote-unquote blacklist, um, really driving the Red Scare, uh, where you know many actors, um, writers uh were, were rounded up and interviewed and Put on trial essentially for um being quote unquote communist sympathizers. And he really brought this like anti-communist um talking points to the forefront as well, right? Associating communism with uh racialized inferiority um, and a threat to the United States. Um, we also know J. Edgar Hoover was. You know the person who made uh, Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. an enemy of the state, and started the FBI's counterintelligence program, um, which you know murdered uh, members of Black freedom movements in the fifties through the seventies. So, some of the concrete things J. Edgar Hoover did was uh, he, when he started, he fired all women agents. Um, that changed over time, obviously, but he held prayer services. Um, and materially supported white Christian efforts with the FBI's resources. So at times actually protecting groups that were affiliated with what we now would know are, are hate groups like the KKK. Um, but in 1965, what what did the country think of this? The Washington Post ran a poll and uh, the majority of those polled sided with Hoover over Dr. King. Um, and this is only three months after Dr. King had won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, mm-hmm. So this this uh, research, there's a great book, The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism um, by Lerone A. Martin. The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover by Lerone A. Martin. I, I want to cite as a major, uh, major research um, that I benefited from.
0: Oh, great. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So we have, um, you know, again, fast forwarding through history, we have, you know, huge social movements in the 60s, 70s, and then we have uh, pushback that happens. So in the early 70s, the Heritage Foundation was created um, to further pro-business, anti-communist, and neoconservative policies. <sighs> yeah, great. Yeah. So essentially, the Her- Heritage Foundation was Not even in a very veiled way. One of their main founders also created the Republican Study Committee, which is a caucus in the House of Representatives, Um, at the same time as this foundation. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, again, not even a hidden history, but this um, attempt really to be bringing white Christian nationalism to legislation as much as possible. And then around that same time, again, in the 70s, the conservative American Legislative Exchange Counselor, Alec. Is oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah, yeah we'll talk that's about the cause here. of so many problems today that we're having to deal with, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and in a nutshell, it was you know, consolidating power, right? So there was a, hey, we see all this social upheaval, the women's movement, uh, civil rights, queer movements, right? Um, and we need to get things back under our control. Uh, and we're going to do that through legislation um, and through consolidating power into a few different organizations. So when Reagan was elected, he was really boosted the Heritage Foundation. Um, I think one of the most important things I learned, uh, he distributed its policy study to his entire staff when he began as president. And that policy study is titled Mandate for Leadership, Principles to Limit Government, Expand Freedom, and Strengthen America. So these make
0: America great again.
1: Exactly these very similar these very similar things, Um, and then we saw that in policy results. So during Reagan's presidency, that's where you know we see corporations enjoying tax exemptions. We see homelessness become a visible uh, epidemic in the U.S. The war on drugs is decimating Black and Brown communities, while then expanding privatized prisons exponentially. Um, you know, AIDS wipes out an entire generation of queer and trans people um, and Christian evangelicalism spikes, surges in popularity. So when you're talking about the amusement parks or other, um, you know, big Christian evangelical happenings, um, that's really deeply propelled in the 80s. And then the next time we see a major growth in the Heritage Foundation is between 2003 and 2006. Um yeah which is a time we had non-discrimination, marriage equality, um, and other uh, policies kind of gaining traction. So they grew- Yeah,
0: LGBTQ rights were beginning to make some gains at that time.
1: Exactly. And the pushback on that almost more than doubled the Heritage Foundation's donor base. So they had a quarter million donors and that grew in three years to over half a million donors. And then um, you know they're engaging in anti-LGBTQ policy, and 2019 though is the first time they really say we're going to go for anti-trans um, laws and policies, and they start that with uh, anti-trans feminists or turfs um, on a basically hosting a panel to talk about transness as a social contagion, quote unquote. Um, so oh, so it- that's
0: one of the first places that word popped up. Huh?
1: Yes, yes, mm-hmm. and when we look at that word "contagion," that word in particular had also been used to refer um, to anti-communism, right? And thinking about
0: and it was also used during HIV when HIV was first starting to yeah. make its appearance. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: absolutely, and and really levied against, um, particularly immigrant communities, you know, being full of disease, quote unquote. Mm-hmm so that's
0: still used that's still used all the time to talk about you know people who are coming here from the global south yeah it's still used all the time
1: yeah so that's a deep thread um in how we have this social contagion talking point um and we also see the some of the same institutions uh particularly the federalist society is another of the conservative groups that was created um And they particularly focused on transforming the judicial branch so they were similarly coming up in the 80s and then we see this coming to fruition when president obama gets you know two justices and uh president trump gets three justices right um and that that's the but then we come to like reversing roe versus wade affirmative action being gutted the rollback of lgbtq rights all these supreme court decisions we've seen in the last two years were a result of decades of organizing right by by the right to ensure that they could affect the judicial branch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then at yeah. the same you know not even to speak of the uh corruption that we know is becoming visible with how these different um lobbying bodies are interacting with giving gifts to taking trips with you know being in community with um people who are on the Supreme Court. Mhm.
0: Hi, this is Emma Lugo, the president of the board of KBOO Community Radio. We're just interrupting the show for just a minute because I just want to tell you, I mean, as as I've served for one year on the board, I mean, I've, I've served for one year as president, and I just think KBOO is this amazing station. We have hired a new uh, station manager, Nathan Van Diver, who's been really putting together the station in a great way. It's been several years since we've had a regular Uh, just a regular station manager and all of our other managers have been great too but it's really nice to have someone who's just dedicated to that job and so you know right now KBOO is in the process of Uh, kind of rebuilding and regrowing and we have um, we've never been in such a great financial position but we also have really seriously increased our costs because we want to pay our employees a living wage and make sure that they get really good benefits and that all costs money and so um, if you love KBOO if you support KBOO if you care about KBOO then uh, during our fall drive if you could please give Um, your support just makes such a difference and if you haven't thought about putting kboo in your will or in your living trust um please let us know you can, um again we do take donations it's that's our the base of our membership support um just go to kboo.fm give or you can also uh, donate on the mobile app or text us at 44321 text kboo to 44321 and you can also send us a check at Uh, Kabu at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Thanks so much for your support of Kabu Community Radio. Mm -hmm.
1: So when we look at January 6th, it makes a lot more sense, right? When we look at back when we had the Tea Party, there is this kind of continuation where this white Christian nationalism has never gone away. I'll note that here in the Northwest, we have our own um, you know, storied history, and there are people who are much more experts than I. Um, but important to note that here in the Northwest, we have the re- the Red Out, uh, which is a battle term about defense. Um, and that has been an active movement since at least 2011 to create a white Christian homeland. Um, some folks might have heard about the 1850s, way back when, there was a movement to secede land from northern california and southern oregon into the state of jefferson the readout is similar to that where they want to cut out part of uh they're connected to the greater idaho movement that wants to take counties from surrounding states and secede those into idaho uh-huh. yeah but i think this in particular like using this area of the country right because we um we're we're attempted white homelands um, in the first place. So there has been a long history of white supremacists here in the Northwest, um, and particularly reacting to some of the quote, quote unquote, West Coast liberality. Uh, Experts have estimated over a decade that tens of thousands of Californians have moved to Idaho uh, because they are recruited. And then we also know that up in Washington, uh, Representative Matt Shea, elected representative Um, back in 2018 released a manifesto titled The Biblical Basis for War um, that outlined what they saw as a coming holy war Right, so we know that some of these like the Tea Party um, these movements are getting folks elected um, and again working toward actually creating explicit white Christian homeland
0: Mm -hmm. so the national motto war is a force that gives us meaning that's kind of what i read yeah Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's um it's kind of terrifying and for me it feels less scary thinking about it in the context of history that we have so many communities who've gone through this before some Mm -hmm. of our own communities um but what we really know is that kind of explicitly or um, implicitly the white christian nationalist beliefs um you know, there's a white race that exists. White people should have our own nations with our own power. The U.S. is a Christian nation. White countries are suffering because of immigration and increased civil rights. Jewish people are infiltrating powerful institutions and conspiring to bring about the downfall of white people. And that white women should be under the control of white men and have more children in order to increase the white population. So these kind of deep beliefs about Um, you know that we we know are ridiculous but uh that that is what's undergirding the transphobia so when we come back to alec um the american legislative exchange council um probably one of the most destructive forces in the history of the u.s government uh, representing corporations having a very i mean they're called the american legislative exchange council because they exist to write sample law and policy uh and have it Go through as many states as possible, um, but they have been—you know—the list goes on. But anti-choice, anti-black, anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant, anti-union, anti-environmental, while being pro-gun industry, pro-prison, and pro-corporation. So this is a this machine of Alec. The American Legislative Exchange Council has also allied with the National Association of Christian Lawmakers and other similar bodies, where they are. Um, Proudly, you know, trying to get as many anti-abortion as anti-trans bills uh, through states as possible. Um, I want to note that there is really the best resource ever um, on this stuff is TransLash Media. Amara uh, Jones, um, who does the TransLash podcast, has now done two seasons, uh, special seasons, called the Anti-Trans Hate Machine. And what she and the folks at TransLash are detailing is really how this rise of the anti-trans hate machine was seeded by these white Christian nationalist organizations, Um, and how we see the proliferation of all these bills and the pseudoscience happening in a very strategic way to um, gain voters, gain sympathy, and uh, you know, hold control um, over over folks using children, particularly as a strategy, right? So, talking about cis children being threatened, talking about trans children, um, that has been, yeah, a very very targeted campaign. Um, and I super suggest the anti-trans hate machine from Translash uh, is the best resource. They have a lot of they have videos and infographs and stuff on their website as
0: well. Thanks so much, Tess. So we've got about maybe five or six minutes left in the show.
1: Great. Yeah, well, I'll share a few of the things that we, um, as we talk about this, that we can actually do, right? Because I I don't like to be, here's all this hard information or this intellectual, but how do we actually use it? Um, so I will say, I think one of the most important things, I'll quote Jairus Dixon. Um, If and when violence occurs, it's the people who live within the closest proximity who are most likely to help us and vice versa. It can be as simple as attending community events, saying hello and introducing yourself to your neighbors, inviting your neighbors to events. It can be the act of talking to your noisy neighbor instead of calling the cops. It's about the necessity of meeting the businesses and store owners in your immediate area and the routes that you frequently use. So we know this isn't possible for everyone, but essentially who we are in closest proximity to is who's most likely to intervene, whether that is the store where we buy our coffee or um, the people we work with or our neighbors, Um, really being able to build relationships where it's possible and safe, even just so folks recognize you, right? Um, And I think for trans people, this can be a super difficult thing because sometimes being seen, it actually compromises our safety. Um, but when we think about direct community organizing and, and kind of learning uh, from folks, this example of personal, local, and immediate comes up, again, crediting courageous conversations about race. Um, but I like to say, you don't have to go, you don't have to go do the most like out of your comfort zone thing um, in order to build kind of relationships and community. You can really just start with like saying hi. Um, and again, that might not be the strategy for everyone, but where it's possible, just make sure people know you. Um, it's harder to be isolated when folks recognize you. Um, and and again, it's very fraught when we think about visibility. Um, it's also important bystander intervention. Um, Hollaback, which formerly known as Hollaback, now right to be they have the five Ds of bystander intervention. So distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct. So when we actually see incidents of violence happening, particularly for folks with privileged identities like being white, being cisgendered, being male or masculine, where can we actually intervene when we're seeing um, threats, assaults, even harassment happening? Um, And really, again, making, making sure that Uh, We're not letting folks be isolated. Think also supporting Black trans-led organizations. There's a number of great organizations out there that are really focused fully on, like they are, we know the intersections of white supremacy and transphobia, and we're going to do this. Um, And then I think combating anti-trans disinformation. So um, there's some really great uh, examples of of how to talk about stuff. political research associates did a great uh combating anti-trans disinformation handout but even just listening to this and you know reading up on a few of the resources educating yourself and having a few citations in your back pocket can be helpful um when we're having conversations to combat disinformation and be like where did you hear that tell me more about why you think that um and then at the same time bringing you know uh our personal talents and skill sets so i'm like if you're a dj you can dj a, a fundraiser or house party if you love cooking you can cook food for someone who's struggling um if you're really good at admin work you can volunteer for a small nonprofit. there's so many uh, bipoc and trans nonprofits out there that need support um and i think being able to to seed counter narratives so There's Christians Against Christian Nationalism for folks in your life who might hold a Christian identity and want to understand and deconstruct this from, um, yeah, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, best name descriptor ever. Um, And I think that they, yeah, they really are deconstructing why, how we, you can hold Christian values, but not necessarily make the U.S. a Christian country. Um, There's also other counter narratives from trans people, the Black Trans Prayer Book, and transphobia is a sin. There's a trans people are sacred billboard project. Um, So just lots and lots of great resources out there. I'll say if there's one place to start, if you're intrigued by what we've talked about today, uh, where you've heard me talk about today, um, check out the anti-trans hate machine um, from Translash. They have just so many resources on, on this
0: great thank you so much we've been talking today with Tash Sats on white nationalism and its role in the rise of uh, anti-trans violence in this country Tash if people want to find out more about you and your work how can they connect with you
1: yeah um, they can my website is TashSats.com that's T-A-S-H-S-H-A-T-Z.com um, and, yeah, my email is Tosh at ToshJazz.com if you want. I'm always happy to share resources with anyone um, and uh, come and do this talk if it's helpful to where you're at.
0: Great, Tash. Thanks so much for joining us tonight on Trans Positive.
1: Thank you, Emma. I really appreciate it. Bedroom surprise.
0: Oo Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. Hi, I'm Rick Mitchell, and I would like to invite you to check out my program, Jazz in the New Millennium, at kboo.fm. Each one-hour program focuses on a living jazz artist, putting their work in historical perspective from their earliest recordings to their most recent. The current season features such primetime players as Jason Moran, Diane Reeves, Christian McBride, Terrence Blanchard, and John Schofield. The weekly program is syndicated nationally by the African American Public Radio Consortium. It can be heard anytime on KBOO's website by going to the drop-down menu at kboo.fm clicking on audio, then podcasts, and scrolling down to the Jazz in the New Millennium.